This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Lucy, and our guest today is Adam Goldenberg, who's an associate litigation lawyer at McCarthy Tatro in their Toronto office. This is part two of my conversation with Adam. In the first part, we spoke about Adam's experiences and his motivations for becoming a litigation lawyer and how that led to him co-authoring a book on Canadian emergency law. In this episode, we delve a little bit into the world of emergency law, and Adam explains what a national emergency is. So before we delve into the book and emergency law a little bit more, I have a question about litigating public law cases more generally. We know that the courts, and especially the Supreme Court, are reluctant to get involved in issuing judgments on political issues. But when you're litigating a public law dispute, that line between politics and the law can get quite blurry. So how do you go about separating the two? So there is a whole body of scholarship about the law politics distinction. And there, I think the the view that I agree with is that it's never as crisp as you'd like it to be, and that it can appear to be at the level of theory that in a court like the Supreme Court of Canada, in particular, where you're the last, the court of last resort in a country where you are deciding issues under the charter, where there's a justification clause, a, a the reasonable limits clause in section one that requires the court to consider issues of proportionality. It's really impossible, maybe to, to, it's impossible to get away from at the very least issues of public policy, if not issues of politics. And so politics in the, in the small P sense of the word is always gonna be part of public law adjudication it's the capital P politics, the kind of partisan contestation that Canadian courts are generally pretty good at, at avoiding uh, in the way that they, they make their decisions. Although, again, there's a diversity of opinion about that too, but I'll let you interview uh, uh, professors who are much more scholarly in their thinking about that than I am. With respect to emergency law, you're right that disputes that will come to the courts, come before the courts, are going to necessarily involve not so much politics, but the policy judgments that governments have made. Those, those fundamentally are going to be the, the judgments, the decisions that are in dispute in public law issues. And we've only seen a couple of them across the country. There are, there's other litigation that's underway. But generally speaking, the, the way in which courts in Canada, I expect, are going to approach this uh, is through the doctrines of deference that exist both in administrative law and in constitutional law. In administrative law, where do you see deference? You see it in the deference to an administrative decision maker's interpretation of its home statute. So, for example, if there was an issue about whether or not a provincial cabinet had the power to make a particular emergency order under the emergency legislation pursuant to which they made the order, there would be a challenge. It would be a challenge for the person challenging that order to establish that the cabinet's interpretation of its own statutory authority was unreasonable. Not to say it's not impossible. There have actually been decisions across the country. There's one from the ombudsperson in British Columbia to this effect that that provincial ministers and provincial cabinets have exceeded their statutory powers despite the deference that they're entitled to in administrative law in interpreting those home statutes. But that is going to be one way in which courts avoid getting into the political thicket is they're going to say ultimately there are judgment calls to be made here 
and the legislature conferred discretion on the cabinet in order to respond to emergency situations. And it would be inconsistent with that discretion, with the legislative purpose of that grant of power for us to get into the weeds about the statutory interpretation issues, even if the court might come to a different conclusion about the scope of the cabinet's statutory authority, there's going to be deference. So that's one way I would expect a court to navigate that issue. Although, as I say, that's definitely not to say that I and other lawyers won't argue that that governments and government decision makers have been unreasonable in how they've interpreted their statutory authority. If those arguments weren't available, there wouldn't be a lot of administrative law litigation to do. And fortunately for me and others, there is. Uh, so that's that's one doctrine that will that will help to navigate that law politics tension that you that you alluded to. In the constitutional context, under the division of powers heading that I mentioned before, there's going to be deference to the federal government at the very least in determining whether or not an emergency has arisen. I mean, you see this in the 1976 anti-inflation reference, where which is the the grandest statement of the emergency branch of the peace order and good government power, where Chief Justice Laskin discusses why it is that you defer to Parliament in determining whether or not an emergency does exist. That's a political judgment. It's a policy judgment. And courts don't want to be the ones making that judgment. So unless a government has unreasonably declared an emergency, and we have all now spent enough time being told to stay home and not being able to go out, out to dinner with friends, that you're not it's not going to be a hard sell to a judge that it was reasonable to consider that this is an emergency situation. There, there's going to be deference in that determination too, or, or with respect to that determination as well. And then the third doctrine of deference that ultimately is going to is going to be to the government's benefit, but but that also is going to help courts navigate the policy issues that arise in, in emergency law disputes, uh, and is the deference that the government is likely to get under Section 1 of the Charter, where, for example, a court concludes that a particular measure limits the right to, to mobility under Section 6, or limits the, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person not to be infringed without, not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice under Section 7. A court less so with Section 7, but more so with Section 6 or other charter rights, is more likely to look to what the government's justification is for why it's limited that that particular constitutional guarantee in the context of a global pandemic and say, okay, we, we have a limit here on a charter right, but it's it's the government has the responsibility to keep people safe. It discharged that responsibility or sought to discharge that responsibility by making this particular order or enacting this piece of legislation. The courts are, I think, going to be loath to second-guess government decision-makers on those sorts of policy determinations, on the justification of limiting a charter a charter right or freedom. But that being said, there are many, many cases where courts have said, even though we do generally defer to the government on under Section 1, the government still has the burden of establishing that a limit on a charter right is reasonable and demonstrably justified, and they haven't met that burden here. And there could be numerous cases across the country where governments have exceeded what they can do constitutionally, because even though a more limited measure, for example, might meet the test of Section 1, the particularly broad measure that the government has to justify in a particular hypothetical case doesn't meet that standard. I mean, I'm regurgitating 1L constitutional law here, but but the, but this is but, but that will be a doctrine that comes to the fore and that courts have resort to in order to getting too deep into the weeds about is this an emergency? Isn't it an emergency? Did the government have to go this far or that far in order to protect public health? Um, ultimately, in a serious challenge to a, a, an emergency measure, there's going to be a great volume of expert evidence that is, the court's going to have to sift through in order to, to make determinations under Section 1. 
Uh, and in doing so, what might appear to an outsider as a policy determination becomes a determination made on the basis of evidence, which is, which is safe ground for courts and litigators. And so our job is, as emergency lawyers, when we are assessing whether a particular government action is subject to or vulnerable to such a challenge, is to think about what that evidence would be. It's not enough to say we disagree with the policy choice the government has made. You actually have to give the court the evidentiary tools it needs in order to reach the conclusion that you or, or more accurately your client want it to want it to reach. Digging into emergency law a little bit more, and I don't think we'll have time to really get into provincial emergency powers, but um, could you briefly give an overview for the listeners of what emergency powers are available at the federal level? Sure. So the Emergencies Act is the, the, the centerpiece of the federal emergency powers arsenal, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, the, it's the, the big piece of legislation that once the federal government invokes it, gives the federal cabinet significant and sweeping powers to respond to a crisis. It has not been invoked. Back in March and April of last year, there was much discussion about whether or not the prime minister and the federal cabinet should proclaim a national emergency and invoke the Emergencies Act. They never did. They still haven't. And at this point, unless there is a dramatic worsening in the situation related to COVID-19, I would personally be surprised if the federal government took that step. Not to say they won't, they could at any time, but, but in order to declare an emergency under the Emergencies Act, the federal cabinet has to be satisfied that the provincial governments are not able to deal with the situation without federal government stepping in and taking over. And the approach that this government has taken, which is consistent, I think, with the scheme of the Emergencies Act, is to let the provinces take the lead. And the provinces have not said to the federal government, we need your help. We can't handle this ourselves. We need Ottawa to step in and take over. There are some who have said that Ottawa should anyway, but the federal government is not of that view. And unless they become of that view, they actually can't invoke the Emergencies Act by proclaiming a national emergency. But if they were to proclaim a national emergency, there would be, as I say, a category of powers available to the federal cabinet under under the, the Emergencies Act, where it could make particular emergency or orders and regulations. Under Section 8 of the Emergencies Act, there would be a process of parliamentary oversight, both for the proclamation of an emergency and of the various orders that were made pursuant to that proclamation. Uh, and that would be how the federal government could govern. Uh, and, and the Emergencies Act, incidentally, categorizes emergencies into a number of broad categories, the most serious of which is a war emergency, where the act basically says once you once you proclaim a war emergency, the federal cabinet can do whatever it needs to do, whatever it considers to be necessary to deal with that situation, because it's a war. The, the survival of the country as, as an entity would be at issue. There's a much more limited set of powers in the case of a public welfare emergency like a pandemic. That's Public welfare emergency is the term in the act. Um, but still, it's a very broad set of powers. And of course, if the federal government with so decided that it need to, uh, it could go back to Parliament and say, we need more powers, so we need to amend the Emergencies Act and add some extra powers to respond to this particular type of emergency. But that's the Emergencies Act. The other act that the federal government has used to great effect, or at least a great deal, uh, effect is something that, that others can, can debate. It's an empirical question rather than a legal one. Uh, but at the very least, the government has, has resorted to its powers under the Quarantine Act. Um, and quarantine is actually a federal power. It's, it's enumerated in Section 91 of the Constitution Act 1867. And the quarantine power is how the government has imposed what we have now colloquially called quarantine rules, like the, 
14 days and the rules that apply at airports and, and border closures and those sorts of things. Many of those regulations have been made under the Quarantine Act. And there's also the Aeronautics Act, which the federal government has used to say where planes can land and what airlines need to do before people get on their flights and so forth. So those are the three broad heads of federal statutory authority pursuant to which the federal government has made orders, uh, not the Emergencies Act, but the Quarantine Act and the Aeronautics Act. What's interesting is that there haven't been a ton of amendments to those laws. There have been orders made under those laws, and there's been a great number of measures that are economic relief measures that Parliament has passed. But generally speaking, the, the, the existing framework, the existing statutory framework has seemed to be sufficient for the, for the federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Elsewise, we would have expected to see the Trudeau government go back to Parliament and say, we need a new law that allows us to do these things that we need to do. They haven't done that in the emergency response not outside of the economic relief measures uh, in a way that, that might have happened if the, if the federal legislative framework weren't as robust as it, as it already is. Provincially, similarly, I know you didn't, you didn't want to get into this and I'm not going to get into it in specifics, but, but provincially, every province by and large has a, an Emergencies Act equivalent. In Ontario, for example, it's called the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. It's called the Emergency Programs Act or the Emergency Management Act in different parts of the country. They have, they have similar names. And provincial governments have either been using that legislative authority to respond to COVID-19 or else they've been using their authority under public health laws in the different provinces. So some provinces, in fact, never declared a capital E emergency under emergency legislation, but did declare a public health emergency under public health legislation, where they have very significant statutory authority as well. And oftentimes where medical officers of health have significant statutory authority to make orders requiring people to do or not do certain things to respond to a pandemic situation. And so provincial governments have been using those emergency powers to great effect as well. And we haven't seen across the country any paradigm shifts in the legislative frameworks that have been used uh, to respond to COVID-19. By and large, we've been using a legislative arsenal that was already in place before the pandemic began. So you alluded to the fact that the Emergencies Act is designed to be the last resort, only if all the elements of a national emergency are satisfied, and that's quite a high threshold to meet. If the federal government were to declare a national emergency, I mean, could this be seen as a maybe failure to mitigate a situation before it becomes so out of control that they have to call it a national emergency? Or on the other hand, is it a failing of the statute that it only allows the federal government to step in when a crisis is seemingly on the verge of becoming out of control? We have to remember the historical context of the of the Emergencies Act. The Emergencies Act was enacted in 1988, and in doing in being enacted, it was introduced by the Mulroney government in 1987. The Mulroney government was fulfilling a promise that actually Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau made in 1970 when his government invoked the War Measures Act, which is the predecessor of the Emergencies Act, in response to the October crisis in Quebec. And there, the federal government sent Canadian troops, sent Canadian authorities into Quebec to deal with a, a domestic Quebec political and, and, and social crisis, the, the October crisis, uh, and the kidnapping, the, the domestic terrorism that led to the kidnapping of, of a Quebec cabinet minister and a British trade commissioner. That is a situation that, that where the federal government was perceived by many to have used the only real tool that was available in its arsenal, but that was a very blunt instrument and that only allowed the federal government to, to act and to interfere in, in provincial matters um, in a very broad brush way. 
And the Mulroney government, 17 years later, when it introduced the Emergencies Act, designed the act so as to give the provinces more of a role, more of a formal role, in determining when provincial, or excuse me, when federal power would be exercised in the way that it was uh, in the October crisis of, of 1970. And, and that it could have been without formal controls from the provinces under the previous War Measures Act. So it's not so much a matter of the, the response being inadequate or the federal government adjudging the provinces not to be doing a good enough job. The act speaks in the, in the language of capacity and the ability of the provinces to deal with a situation. So if the government has a, a subjective disagreement with how a particular province is, is responding to a pandemic situation, I mean, ultimately, if the government, if the cabinet made the determination that that province did not have the capacity to deal with the situation because the numbers are too high or they just aren't dealing with it effectively, it would be unlikely that a court would, would prevent it from stepping in unless it was really egregiously uh, misjudging what the provincial government's capacity was. It's more of a question of, of the scale of the, of the event, the scale of the emergency, whether the emergency is such by its nature, by some objectively discernible characteristics of the emergency that the provinces just aren't going to be able to handle it or it it crosses provincial boundaries in a way that the coordination of response is just going to be beyond the capacity of the provinces it also but incidentally has to be the situation has to be beyond the the reach or beyond the capacity of the federal government under other laws of canada so if for example the quarantine act and the aeronautics act which i mentioned a moment ago didn't give the federal government the statutory authority it needed to make the kinds of emergency response orders that the government has made over the last year, then that could be an argument in favor of invoking the Emergencies Act and, and making those sorts of orders, provided that they're uh, the kinds of orders that are allowed for under Section 8 of the Emergencies Act, in order to go beyond the other laws of Canada that are available to respond to an emergency. So the Act is written in order to, for there to be some objective measures of whether the federal government invoking this very big stick is is going to be is going to be appropriate in a particular set of circumstances, and the, and it's designed to make the federal government appropriately reticent to declare a national emergency and step in, and we've seen that I think play out over the last year. So then, from a different angle, um, so you know, you mentioned that the last federal crisis response was to the October crisis of 1970, under the War Measures Act, which has now evolved into the Emergencies Act. There was criticism of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's use of the act, as you mentioned, but can we still use the October crisis as a benchmark for what constitutes a national emergency? Yes and no. I mean, the October crisis would be would be called a public order emergency under the Emergencies Act. There's actually a separate category that that is is intended for a situation like the October crisis, a, a what during the October crisis and under the War Measures Act was called an apprehended insurrection. The, a pandemic like COVID-19 wouldn't fall into that category. And so it's an imperfect analog because the statutory framework has changed. But remember, in the October crisis, the provincial premier of Quebec, Premier Barassa, actually, and the mayor of Montreal, actually asked the federal government to, to get involved, to intervene. And so, and, the, and the, the Emergencies Act is drafted in a way that says that if the emergency is within the borders of a single province, the federal government can't declare an emergency and step in if the provincial government isn't on board. If the provincial government says, no, we got this, the feds have no power to step in. Now, that doesn't apply here because it's not a single province emergency. It's across provincial boundaries. 
and the act is is designed so that one province can't veto the invocation of the emergencies act in a way that would allow the federal government to respond to a a interprovincial crisis like COVID-19 is um, but but so it's hard to again use the the October crisis as a as a specific objective yardstick except to the extent that there was buy-in and in fact a request from the the city and the province that were directly implicated in that in that situation in response to which the feds invoked the war measures act so here in in 2020 in the in the early months of the pandemic the the prime minister actually wrote to the provincial premiers and said are you interested in a federal emergency response under the emergencies act he didn't use those words exactly but he, he essentially asked the provinces whether they had this thing under control or whether it was beyond their capacity and the feds needed to step in and all the premiers said no we got this having asked that question and gotten that answer i think the precedent of the of the of the october crisis where the answer was the opposite and the way the act is written, I think it would be very difficult for the federal government after that point to, to justify invoking a national emergency. But that being said, and I, I made this point before, if the federal cabinet said, we've looked at this whole situation, we've looked at the act in our considered judgment, the criteria are satisfied, we are proclaiming a national emergency, the likely of a court looking at that and saying that was unreasonable is fairly low. Not impossible, but low. Okay, well, I'd love to chat more about this with you. There's so much more to unpack here, but uh, that's all my questions for you today. Adam, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful conversation. I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. It's my pleasure, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.